Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the fourth episode in our series on legal challenges construction contractors face in the federal procurement space. In this episode, Jackie Unger and Anna Sullivan, attorneys in Palero Maza's Government Contracts Group, provide an overview of the DOT's Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program and break down the infrastructure bill's impact on DBEs. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today as part of Palero Maza's construction series. And today we'll be discussing the Department of Transportation's Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program and the recently passed infrastructure bill's impact on the DBE program. My name is Jackie Unger. I'm counsel in Palero Maza's government contracts practice group. In addition to helping clients with matters related to the DBE program, my practice involves a wide variety of government contracting and general business issues, such as representing clients in bid protests and size and status protests, helping with requests for equitable adjustments, claims and appeals of contracting officers' final decisions, advising on FAR and other small business regulatory compliance issues, drafting and reviewing teamings of contract and joint venture agreements, and counseling clients when disputes inevitably arise and assisting clients involved in False Claims Act investigations. That's a little bit of background about me. Today, I'm also joined by my colleague, Anna Sullivan. As a member of our government contracts practice group, Anna helps government contractors maintain compliance with governing laws and regulations. She also assists with bid protests and contract and agreement review and drafting and eligibility for small business programs, including the DBE program that we'll be discussing today. As a little bit of background about Polaro Maza, Polaro Maza is a business law firm that serves as a strategic partner to government contractors and commercial businesses across various industries and practice areas, including business and transactions, labor and employment, and litigation and dispute resolution. If you're interested in staying up to date on recent developments impacting government contractors as well as commercial businesses generally, you should consider signing up for our newsletters and blogs at our website, poleromaza.com. So before we dive into the substance today, I wanted to provide a brief overview about what we'll be discussing. First, we want to touch on what is the DBE program. We want to talk about how a firm gets certified as a DBE and what the eligibility standards are, as well as what a firm needs to do to maintain that eligibility once it's in the program. I also want to talk about prime contractor obligations in using DBEs as subcontractors and how DBE participation is counted towards DBE goals on specific contracts. And finally, we'll dive into the impacts of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act on the DBE program. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Anna to get us started with a brief overview of the DBE program. Hi, everyone. So first, we want to talk about you know, what the DBE program is. So on a high level, it's a federal program that's run through the U.S. Department of Transportation, created with the goal of leveling the playing field by providing disadvantaged business enterprises, DBEs, a fair opportunity to compete for federally funded transportation contracts through the DOT's operating administrations, the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Aviation Administration, and the Federal Transit Administration. So it's really an anti-discrimination program set up through the U.S. DOT that is implemented by state and local agencies that receive funding through the DOT for their state and local contracts. So in order to receive the funding, the recipients, aka these state and local agencies, 
must develop and implement a program that conforms to DOT's standards. So now I'm going to go into who the players are and what different opportunities that you may have. So the USDOT ultimately sets the regulations for how the program is run and then needs to be run by the state and local agencies. DOT provides oversight and enforcement of the regulations and provides for appeals for DBE firms if they are denied or if they have their certifications removed. And then we have state and local agencies that actually handle the certification of DBE firms. They receive the applications, even though it's a uniform application, each state or local agency actually reviews these applications, and then they set their own goals for DBEs, whether that's overall for the year for percentage of DBE work that needs to be performed, or whether it's contract-specific goals for different DBE participation. And they also have their own monitoring and reporting requirements where they pay attention to DBE participation coming in. They look at where the dollars are going, see if they're meeting their goals, and then they report back to DOT. They also monitor DBE firms themselves and prime contractors who use DBEs to ensure that they are in compliance. So prime contractors who are awarded contracts with a DBG, DBE participation goal are required to use good faith efforts to use DBE subcontractors, and they have reporting requirements as well. And then we, of course, have the DBE firms themselves who also have their own compliance and reporting requirements. And then as for opportunities, the majority of funding is for construction projects, which accounts for about 85% of the funds. Primarily, this goes to state and highway transportation agencies for highway construction, but it isn't limited to construction. DOT dollars can go to DBEs for services, for landscaping, engineering, utilities, IT, and then also for airport concessionaires and car rental operations at airports, as well through the FAA, which is a separate program called the Airport Concessionaire DBE Program. This program runs through similar standards, but has expanded opportunities. So really, it's a broad range of contracts that DBE certification may be eligible for that you should be thinking about trying to get involved with. So now I'm going to go through some of the basic requirements for certification as a DBE. And at the highest level, DBEs are for-profit small businesses that are owned and controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. And you might recognize this language as it's similar to SBA's 8A program requirements, but they are not the same. It's a different application process. So it's very important to understand the certification standards to become DBE certified specifically. There's also different programs for small business enterprises and minority business enterprises that you could also get certified with. So it's important to be cognizant of these different requirements and realize that they might not all be the same. So I'm now going to talk about the two different types of disadvantage needed to be a DBE. I'll start with social disadvantage. So big difference between DBE and the 8A program is in the DBE program, women are presumed to be socially disadvantaged. So this is not the same as an 8A. So there are a lot of companies that go for DBE rather than 8A just based on this difference alone. And other members of different groups can also qualify. And the big test is that you have to have held yourself out as a member of this group. So you need to make sure that this is how you identify yourself in case the DBE asks you to prove your social disadvantage. So being born in a particular country does not necessarily automatically make or break your social disadvantage. It's kind of fact-specific and person-specific on how you've held yourself out. And I want to note that lawfully admitted permanent residents can also qualify. You don't necessarily need to be a U.S. citizen. 
And then other individuals might qualify on a case-by-case basis as socially disadvantaged, but you'll need to have a pretty strong narrative to explain your social disadvantage that you've been subject to throughout your life. But largely, most people would want to fall under one of these categories. Otherwise, it can be a pretty hard standard to meet. And then next for economic disadvantage. So you have to also be economically disadvantaged, which applies to the owners who are qualifying the company. Not necessarily every owner of the business, but those who control the day-to-day operations and who are the majority owners. Each of these owners, which there can be more than one or just one, must certify that he or she has a personal net worth that does not exceed 1.32 million. And I'll talk about how you calculate this more, but you have to provide a signed notarized statement of your personal net worth. It's important to note also, if your net worth is over this threshold, there's presumption that you are not disadvantaged, which you can rebut if it doesn't necessarily accurately represent your net worth. But generally speaking, if you're over it, you won't be considered economically disadvantaged. But there's also a test referred to as the ability to accumulate substantial wealth that gives DOT programs the ability to look at your entire financial situation as a whole. And if your average gross income is more than $350,000 over the last three years, or if the total fair market value of your assets exceeds $6 million, you could be presumed to not be economically disadvantaged. This can also be rebutted by showing why you have an unusual level of income, if you've had some earnings that were offset by losses, if your income has been reinvested into the firm or used to pay taxes. So all that to say is that this $1.32 million is a good test, but it's not the end-all be-all for economic disadvantage. Yeah, Anna, just to jump in quickly, I think that's a, a really important point because we see a lot of people that just assume because they are under that $1.32 million cap that they automatically qualify as economic disadvantage. So your, your point here is very important that the certifying agency is supposed to look outside of just that number and take into account this whole picture and can look at these and should look at these other factors to see if even if you're able to manipulate your financial circumstances in some way to get under that cap, that does not guarantee that you're going to be qualified as economically disadvantaged. And the certifying agency will look at whether you truly are disadvantaged. You know, are you not able to get access to financing that a truly economically disadvantaged individual might not have access to based on the total picture of your financial situation? So just wanted to hammer home what an important aspect that is. Thanks, Jackie. All right. So now calculating your personal net worth. So in order to calculate this, you essentially take your assets minus your liabilities, but you're allowed to exclude some things from your assets. So one of the exclusions can be the individual's ownership in the applicant firm. So if you happen to own another business, your equity in that business would not be excluded. It's only the company that's applying for DBE certification. You can also exclude equity in your primary residence. Note this only your primary residence, so not if you own a second home or a vacation home, etc. And another exclusion is as it relates to retirement or other investment accounts. You need to value those accounts if you were to take the full amount of that account out now. So what is the amount left over after taxes and any interest penalties? You'll also want to be sure that you're not over-reducing your net worth by contingent liabilities, essentially liabilities that are contingent on something happening in the future. So you can't use contingent liabilities such as legal claims, federal income tax, et cetera, to try to reduce your net worth. 
So the other key part of certification is ownership and control by the socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. So generally speaking, the firm has to be at least 51% directly owned by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. And direct here means that you as the disadvantaged owner, you have to hold the ownership in the firm. It can't be through another entity, for example. You also need to own at least 51% of each class or membership interest as applicable for your type of business. So if it's a corporation, you need to own at least 51% of each class of voting stock and 51% of any aggregate of all stocks outstanding. And it's the same type of thing for LLCs and partnerships. Each class of the interest has to be held at least 51% by the qualifying owner or owners. And DOT focuses heavily on how your ownership was acquired. It's a big sticking point, particularly in terms of capital. DOT will look at how the ownership was acquired. Did you purchase it? What capital was used to start the company? If you acquire the business through a transaction, they'll want the transaction to have been in the normal course of business for money. So generally speaking, mere participation in an activity as an employee previously who the owner then shifted the business to, that's not enough. You have to prove that there was specific expertise in the business or sweat equity that went into the business. So generally speaking, they're looking for actual capital contributions to start a company. If it was made through a loan, they'll want to make sure the loan was secured. Because if it's unsecured, they could find it was not a real capital contribution. And you'll also want to be considerate of any marital assets used to form the company. This is also a big sticking point. If this is done, the spouse must renounce and transfer all of their rights in ownership. So it is clear that the qualifying spouse put their money and their time into starting the business and that it wasn't just transferred to them. There is an exception to this type of transfer if the property was granted in a divorce, in a legal separation, or in an inheritance. In those instances, this shouldn't really be questioned. But generally speaking, you'll want to acquire your ownership with your own money. And it's important not just that you own it, but that you've acquired it in a way that DOT would like to see. Some other ownership considerations are that the owners need to be entitled to losses and profits commensurate with their ownership of the firm. So if there's any term that gives someone else a superior right to profits, that's problematic. So overall, it's important to be aware of the ownership requirements so that you make sure that they're in line with the regulations. Yeah. So just one quick point there. Just be aware that the certifying agency is going to look at that supporting documentation for how the company was started, what money was used to start it, or for transfer of ownership, how was it purchased? It's not going to be sufficient if you just have documentation, for instance, in an operating agreement that shows that states that you're the 51% owner. That's not enough. You need, really need to dig back into your bank records and those financial transactions to show, okay, here's the money that I contributed, not money that my spouse contributed or somebody else, but that I put into it and that you can you'll be able to go back and provide that documentation to show your contribution. So the next key part is to make sure that the qualifying owner or owners also control the business. So this kind of has two parts. The one part is on the owner and then one on the company itself. So the company on its own cannot be dependent on its relations with other firms. So you can't have a contractual relationship with one company that makes it dependent on the other. So the agencies thus examine the applicant's relationship with non-DBE firms, prime contractors, employees, et cetera, to see if there's any kind of dependence there. 
And you'll also want to make sure that the disadvantaged individuals are controlling the day-to-day and long-term operations of the business, aka they need to control all decisions of the company. The DB regulations are not entirely explicit on if any negative control rights, aka veto or minority owner rights, are permissible. So this could ultimately boil down to the specific state that you're looking at. But the easiest way to demonstrate control is by showing that disadvantaged owners control all decisions of the company. You can also demonstrate control by showing that the disadvantaged owner is the highest officer. You could look into if they're the highest paid. They should be a full-time devoted employee to the company. They shouldn't have any outside employment or ownership interests that could take away from their ability to control the company in any way. There are exceptions, of course, and they can delegate certain responsibilities, but it's a pretty fact-specific situation. So lastly, you'll want to keep in mind the particular NAICS code of each type of industry you perform work under, because you'll have to demonstrate that you can control the company in each industry you perform work in. And the next big requirement is that DBE itself needs to be a small business. So in order to be a small business for DBE purposes, there are a couple of steps. First, the company must be a small business under the SBA's size standards, including the affiliation rules. And for DBE, you cannot exceed the DOT's cap of $26.29 million in average gross receipts over the previous three fiscal years. And I want to note that DOT issued a memo last October regarding the size calculations because, as you may be aware, SBA is shifting from a three-year calculation to a five-year calculation with the option right now to use three years or five years until January. But what is small for SBA is not the same for DOT. And DOT thus clarified that it's still three years for them because it's required by statute under the Fixing America's Service Transportation Act. So it's important to keep in mind there's two different requirements for DBEs, but DBEs working on FAA contracts are only subject to the SBA size standards, not the DBE size standards. So you want to keep that in mind as well. Okay, I'm going to talk about the certification process. I did want to make one more note related to demonstrating control and the control requirements before I move on to this. That relates to where ownership of the firm is transferred from a non-disadvantaged individual to a disadvantaged individual. We do see that sometimes that the disadvantaged individual isn't starting the company on its own, but buys it from a non-disadvantaged individual. And sometimes that non-disadvantaged individual will stay involved with the firm. They don't just sell their interest and then move on to whatever else they've got going on and completely separate from the business. They may stay involved as a minority owner, as a, an employee of some sort or an officer. In that case where that non-disadvantaged individual stays involved, there will be a rebuttable presumption of control by that non-disadvantaged owner, meaning that then the control requirements won't be met or won't be deemed to be met. Unless the new disadvantaged DBE owner shows by clear and convincing evidence that the transfer was made for reasons other than obtaining the DBE certification and is able to show that the disadvantaged owner actually does exercise that control over the company. So the certifying agency and DOT has this concern that a transfer might take place just to become DBE certified and take advantage of that certification without actually showing that there has been a true change in control because that non-disadvantaged individual remains involved in the company. And so there's the the presumption that they're really the ones in control. So there will be, I just want people to be aware of this potential additional burden depending on how the ownership by the disadvantaged individual comes into play 
and about this rebuttable presumption when it, the transfer is from this non-disadvantaged individual. So moving on now to the certification process for getting your firm certified as a DBE. So the standards are set at the national level under DOT's regulations. They require that applicants in every state fill out the same unified certification application. And this is part of the requirement for recipients of DOT funding to participate in a unified certification program that's established in each state. The point of the UCP being to provide a one-stop shopping situation where the applicant is required to apply only once for DBE certification that will be honored by all recipients in the state, whether the funds flow to the state level or to local agencies within that state or local levels like to cities or whatever it may be. DOT wants the applicant to only have to fill out one application within that state and have all of those recipients of the DOT funding honor that application. So in filling out that application, along with that, the applicant will be required to provide supporting documentation to show that it meets all of the eligibility requirements that Anna was just talking about. The supplemental documents would include documentation related to the legal structure and the ownership and control of the applicant firm, its bonding and financial capacity of the firm, any lease and loan agreements or bank account signature cards. You would have to provide documents related to the work history of the firm, including contracts it has received and work it has completed, as well as payroll records. It would be required to provide a list of equipment owned by or available to the firm and the licenses that the firm and its key personnel possess to perform the work that it's seeking to do as a DBE and complete federal income tax returns filed by the firm, any affiliates, and socially and economically disadvantaged owners over the past three years. So in addition to providing all of this documentation, the certifying agency will perform an on-site visit, which will include interviews with the principal officers, will entail a review of resumes and work histories. It could also include interviews with key personnel of the firm if necessary, just to get a better sense, to make sure that everything lines up with what's in the application, the sporting documents, and to make sure that the actual way that the firm is being operated is in line with the ownership and control requirements. And the application is supposed to be processed in 90 days. We don't always see that happen. That's 90 days from when all of the supporting materials are actually provided. So if there needs to be back and forth, which often occurs between the certifying agency and the applicant, then that can be stretched out. And there's also the potential for a 60-day extension. So that's how the application process works within the state. There's also the possibility for interstate certification, which is where the applicant is certified in its home state and then seeks to also become a DBE and bid as a DBE on contracts in other states. So before you can be certified in another state, the applicant must get certified in the state where its principal place of business is located. So a recipient in another state is not required to process an application from a firm that's located outside of that state if it's not first certified as a DBE in its home state. So assuming that you're able to get certified in your home state, then you can apply to the other states for certification. And in that circumstance, the second state has the option of either just accepting your home state's certification 
without really looking at any of the supporting documents, just saying the home state accepted it, therefore we're going to accept that certification as well. Or if they don't, then they have specific steps that they're required to go through in terms of gathering and reviewing DBE documentation from the home state. And the applicant as well has specific information that it needs to provide with the interstate recipient. And then based on its own review of the documents, the second state must certify the firm unless it has good cause to believe that the certification in the home state was erroneous or should not apply. So it doesn't really do a full-blown analysis itself of all of the supporting documents and that eligibility determination, but it will look to see whether there's a problem with that determination that the home state made. And if there does appear to be a problem with it, or if there has been a change in circumstances, then that could be a basis for the second state to deny the interstate application. Okay, so next I want to talk about requirements for remaining in the DBE program. After being certified, a DBE firm remains certified unless the certifying agency removes the certification, which requires a hearing process and certain procedural aspects that the state would have to go through. So generally, you are certified for life as long as you continue to meet the requirements, but there is an annual certification requirement. The DBE must provide an annual affidavit that there have been no changes in eligibility or other material information in the application, and that the firm continues to meet the size standards and the overall gross receipts cap. You would be required to provide your latest tax returns, and the state may also ask for other supporting documentation to show that the eligibility remains. So it's pretty basic, just as long as there haven't been any changes, you can just sign this form, provide your latest financials, and then you should be good to go for the following year. However, if there have been changes in circumstances, the DBE firm must inform the state certifying agency in writing of any changes in circumstances that affect its size, disadvantage status, ownership or control, or any changes in management, really any aspects or any changes that have occurred that could materially impact its eligibility for the program. So notice of any of these changes needs to be given within 30 days of the occurrence, and you need to provide documentation that describes the changes. A certification review by the certifying agency may take place. This could include an unannounced on-site review if they find out about changes that have occurred. And providing the notice of these changes is extremely important. If a DBE firm fails to make a timely notification of a change in the circumstances, it will be deemed to have failed to cooperate, and that could result in the removal of its eligibility. The recipient can also temporarily suspend a DBE if it fails to notify the recipient of material changes or fails to timely file its annual affidavit that there haven't been any changes or if it finds on its own that there's evidence of a change in circumstances affecting its eligibility. So it's usually better to err on the side of providing that notice about potential changes if you're not sure whether a change is material or not provide that notice or check with your counsel to see whether it's something that's material enough that should be disclosed to the certifying agency because you don't want to be in a circumstance where you don't let them know that you've brought on a new owner or something like that. There's a new manager that's involved in the business and they believe that it's material, whereas you didn't provide the notice because you didn't think it was material and that can lead to 
you know, some issues. So very important to comply with those notice requirements. Okay, so we've been talking about the DBE firm itself and how it can be eligible and how it remains in the program. I want to transition now over to prime contractor obligations and what DOT's regulations are regarding what prime contractors must do when they are working on contracts that have goals for DBE participation. So contracts with DBE goals for subcontracting may only be awarded to offerors who make good faith efforts to meet that DBE goal. The bidder can meet the requirement either by documenting commitments by DBEs that are sufficient to meet the goal, meaning they're actually going to use a DBE subcontractor in a sufficient amount to meet that goal that's been set for that contract. Or if they haven't found a DBE sufficient to meet that goal, they have at least documented adequate good faith efforts to meet the goal. This means the bidder must show that it took necessary and reasonable steps to achieve the DBE goal, which could reasonably be expected to obtain sufficient DBE participation, even if they're not ultimately successful in getting a DBE to do the work as is the goal for the contract. Good faith efforts, as we have here, would include doing market research to look for DBEs, attending a matchmaking event that perhaps the state or the contracting client can put on to match up potential prime contractors with DBEs, can include negotiating in good faith with DBEs to try to bring them on as a subcontractor. And it could also include efforts to assist interested DBEs in obtaining any bonding or lines of credit or insurance that might be required by the recipient or the prime contractor or efforts to help a DBE obtain necessary equipment, supplies, or materials. But importantly, what does not count as a good faith effort is a promise to use a DBE after contract award. And just that, you know, saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll find a DBE down the road. That's not going to cut it. The prime contractor must identify the DBE firm to be awarded the subcontract. So assuming that you have found your DBE firm, you need to specifically identify them, describe the work and the NAICS code applicable to their work, the dollar amount for the DBE firm's work, and proof of commitment to use the DBE from the prime contractor, as well as proof from the DBE of their intended use. So basically, or their agreement to serve as the subcontractor under that contract. I think it's important to note that DBEs are also subject to these requirements when they are serving as a prime contractor. Usually, we see DBEs serve as subcontractors, but there are also many opportunities where the DBE firm can be the prime contractor itself. And when that's the case, they're also subject to the requirement if they're going to use a subcontractor to make good faith efforts to use a DBE subcontractor if necessary to meet the DBE goal for the contract. Next, I want to talk about obligations with respect to payment terms. Where DBE participation is required, the recipient is supposed to include in the prime contract a requirement for the prime contractor to pay DBE subcontractors for satisfactory performance of their subcontracts no later than 30 days after the prime contractor receives payment. So basically, this is a prompt payment requirement that the prime contractor pay the DBE within 30 days of its receipt of its own payment. And the prime contractor may also include terms requiring the prime contractor to engage in ADR procedures if any payment disputes arise. And that can be up to the recipient. So you just need to pay special attention to DBE requirements if you're the prime contractor that are included in that prime contract. 
There are also specific requirements or limitations really on changing the work that you have agreed to provide or use a DBE for. So the prime contractor will need approval for any reductions or changes to the DBE's scope of work, including if it wants to do work with its own forces or those of an affiliate company or use a non-DBE firm, or even if it's substituting another DBE firm with the one that had been identified in the prime contract, you will need to get approval from the recipient before making any of those changes. This also, again, this applies if the prime contractor is a DBE, if that DBE prime is relying on a DBE sub to meet the contract goal. The changes will only be permitted for good cause, which could be like if the DBE voluntarily withdraws on its own or it fails to execute a subcontract. If it turns out that the DBE is ineligible or becomes ineligible to receive DBE credit for the work that was required, or if the DBE fails to perform the work in a reasonable manner that would be consistent with industry standards. So there is recognition that there may be times where it's appropriate to terminate a DBE subcontract or to replace them but you have to get that approval and show that good cause before that takes place. And then when you are replacing one DBE, you need to, again, go back and make those good faith efforts to replace the DBE with another DBE firm. Again, this requirement is very important because failure to comply would be treated as a material breach of the prime contract, and that could result in termination. It can result in payments being withheld to the prime contractor liquidated damages, sanctions, or the prime contractor being disqualified from future bidding as a non-responsible contractor. So very important that you're aware of and follow these requirements. The next thing that I want to talk about is counting DBE participation. So even if you have agreed to use a DBE firm as a subcontractor, There are specific requirements that need to be met before the effort that's put in by the subcontractor will count as DBE credit towards those DBE goals for that contract. There's two aspects to this. The first aspect is that the DBE firm must perform a commercially useful function. The key here is that DOT wants to make sure that the DBE is not just serving as a pass-through. It's not being used only for its DBE status without actually doing substantive work on the project. So to be doing a commercially useful function, there are certain standards that need to be met. That includes performing, managing, and supervising the work, and basically being responsible for execution of the DBE's portion of the work. And in that regard, the recipient will consider the amount of work that's subcontracted, standard industry practices for what that kind of contractor would be responsible for, whether the amount that the firm is paid is commensurate with the work it's actually performing and the DBE credit being claimed, as well as other relevant factors. And then as it relates specifically to a contract that involves materials and supplies, the DBE itself must be responsible for negotiating the price of those materials and supplies, determining the appropriate quality and quantity, ordering the materials, if applicable and required under the subcontract, then doing the installation itself and paying for the material itself. So all five of those factors need to be met for the DBE to be considered doing a commercially useful function where the subcontract involves the obtaining materials and supplies. I also want to point out 
that the DBE will be presumed not to be performing a commercially useful function if it does not self-perform at least 30% or if it subcontracts more than is normal for the industry. So if the DBE is passing through the majority of the work for more than that, what, 70%, then it's going to be presumed that they're not doing a commercially useful function unless you can show that the amount that you're subcontracting is normal in the industry and should be accepted. Okay, so then the the second part relates to assuming that a commercially useful function is being performed by the DBE firm. How are you going to be able to calculate the actual credit that you can take for the DBE firm's effort? And the DBE credit that is earned on a particular contract will depend on the type of work that's being performed by the DBE. So where the DBE's work involves professional, technical, or consultant services, the entire fee or commission charged by the DBE firm will be counted. If the contract involves construction and other types of contracts other than the professional services ones or material and supply contracts that I'll get to in a second, then the portion that's performed by the DBE's own forces will be counted towards the credit. And then it gets a little bit more complicated with respect to contracts for provision of materials and supplies. In that case, the amount, the DBE credit that can be taken will depend on the DBE firm's status as a manufacturer, a regular dealer, or neither of those two. If the DBE firm qualifies as a manufacturer, which is a firm that operates or maintains a factory or establishment that produces the materials and supplies sought, then you'll be able to, the prime contractor can count 100% of the cost of those supplies and materials. However, if the DBE instead is a regular dealer, which would be a firm that owns or operates a store or warehouse where the materials are kept and regularly sold to the public, and where the firm's principal business is the purchase and sale of those products, so it regularly deals in the sort of products that are sought under the contract. In that case, 60% of the cost of the materials and supplies can be counted as DBE credit under the contract. However, if the firm doesn't qualify as a manufacturer or a regular dealer, then only the fees or the commissions for the DBE's work will be counted the costs of the actual materials itself will not be counted. So where the DBE is acting really as a transaction expediter or a packager, a broker, then in those situations, they're not a regular dealer and only the fee and commission would be counted. And additionally, any work that's subcontracted to a non-DBE also will not count towards DBE credit on that contract. Okay, okay. so I'm now going to switch into talking, sorry, about the <laughs> sorry, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. <laughs> All right. So as just a general overview, the Act provides a significant investment in America's infrastructure. There's an estimated $1.2 trillion in total funding over the next 10 years, with $550 billion of new funding on hard infrastructure alone. So this is pretty significant. There's $100 billion for roads, bridges, and major projects, $66 billion on passenger and freight rail, $40 billion for bridge repair replacement and rehabilitation, $39 billion in modernized transit, and $25 billion in airports. So now I'm going to shift into the impact that this act has on DBEs and construction. So the act was passed after Congress reviewed tons of testimony from congressional hearings, at roundtables, scientific reports, reports issued by public and private agencies, and Congress ultimately decided that there are compelling reasons to continue the GBE program. 
So Congress has determined that the DBE program is a success, but that there are still existing obstacles for minority and women-owned businesses seeking to do business for federally assisted surface transportation projects. Thus, there's still a need for the DBE program. But this is positive news, ultimately, because it demonstrates that Congress is committed to helping small, disadvantaged businesses take a larger role in transportation-related projects. So more specifically, the Act has provided for an explosion in funding, with at least 10% of the amounts made under Division A, Division C, and Funds for Highway Safety, R&D, to be expended through small business concerns owned and controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. And Division A here deals with surface transportation funding with increased appropriations for the Federal Aid Highway Program to $52 billion for fiscal year 2022, with an increase of $1 billion yearly until 2026. This includes the Bridge Investment Program, which authorizes $12 billion in new grants to replace and repair bridges, the Reconnecting Communities Pilot Program, with $1 billion in new grants for low-income neighborhoods, and the Promoting Resilient Operations for Transformative, Efficient, and the Cost Savings Transportation, aka PROTECT program, with $7 billion to address weather-related vulnerabilities. And Division C here deals with public transportation programs, appropriating over $106 billion for FCA programs over the next five years. So the amount of funding for various projects and the requirement that no less than 10% should be awarded to small business concerns owned and controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals should lead to an explosion in the number of contracting opportunities available to DBE firms in the coming years. The Act also addresses a couple other areas of the DBE program. So one aspect going back again to prompt payment is that the act now puts even more of an emphasis on prompt payment to DBE firms. As I mentioned, the DBE regulations require that all contracts under the DBE program must require the prime contractor to pay its DBE subcontractors within 30 days of its own receipt of payment from the government. Well, now the act directs the secretary of DOT to take additional steps to ensure that recipients of DOT funding comply with this prompt payment requirement in terms of making sure that's actually inserted into those prime contracts. It suggests increasing the ability of DOT to track and keep records of complaints, such as complaints from DOT contractors who are not receiving their payment timely as required, and also making information about those complaints publicly available. So it may take a little bit for regulations related to this to actually come out, but we should expect to see some more strict enforcement of these prompt payment requirements. This just shows that you know, Congress recognizes the dramatic impact that a late or a delayed payment can have on a DBE contractor, you know, a small business owned by socially economically disadvantaged individuals. Any late payment can have a huge impact on the business operations. So Congress is trying to limit the frequency of this actually taking place. And so another aspect of the act is its relation to the uniform application. The act directs DOT to establish minimum uniform criteria for states to use when they certify a firm in terms of determining whether it qualifies as a small business. So we did already go over the fact that there is a uniform application that's used but now it looks like in the act, there are additional aspects that Congress wants all of the states to consider because 
I think we also mentioned that each of the states has its own program, and there can be aspects of each of those programs that operates a little bit differently from any other state. As long as all of the states comply with the federal regulations, you know, those are kind of a minimum, but each state can have its own idiosyncratic requirements as well. So with respect, at least to determining the small business standards, Congress is requiring that there be some minimum criteria here, which would require each of the states to do on-site visits, consider personal interviews with personnel, the issuance or inspection of licenses, the listings of equipment, analysis of the firm's bonding capacity, listings of the work that it's completed, an examination of the resumes of principal owners, an analysis of its financial capacity, analysis of the type of work preferred. So this may be helpful in having a little bit more consistency across states in what each of the states is going to be considering, which can be particularly helpful for those firms that are considering interstate applications, making sure that there won't be differences in the standards of what the states are looking at in this regard. And then one other area of the DBE program that the bill impacts is, of course, related to reporting requirements because Congress loves to add new reporting requirements. These primarily relate to state and recipient requirements, not necessarily any obligations on the DBE firm. So the act directs DOT to establish minimum requirements for states to report on their DBE awards, commitments, and achievements, and to provide other information that DOT determines appropriate for proper monitoring of the DBE program. I think a lot of states already do this sort of reporting, but it may not be uniform across the states. So now we might see some more minimum requirements there. And we'll have to wait to see what DOT comes out with in its rulemaking in terms of whether it believes that there's other requirements that are necessary for this proper monitoring and enforcement of the DBE program rules. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. And then the act directs states to annually keep track of the small businesses in the state and to notify DOT of the percentage of small businesses that are controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. So that's basically just keeping track of what DBE firms are in the state. And I know that generally there are already listings of DBE firms in the state. So, you know, maybe we're just making sure that we're keeping track of them and the changes over time, as well as keeping track of the percentage of the breakdown of those DBE firms, whether they qualify as a woman-owned small business, a woman-owned and economically disadvantaged small business, or outside of other than woman-owned small business. I know that those are potential breakdowns that the Act wants states to keep track of. So those are some of the reporting requirements that have come out of the Act. So finally, I wanted to touch on what's next. As Anna already said, we should expect a sharp increase in opportunities for DBEs over the next five years and likely beyond that as well. While much of the funding under the bill will take some time for federal agencies to actually get that funding out as they may have to administer new grants and design new programs through which the funding will actually flow, the funding may flow much faster for the type of projects on which DBEs may be involved such as DOT repair type projects that involve resurfacing or improving roads where new rulemaking may not be required. So the additional, this huge increase in funding is really great for DBEs and the DBE program. And as a result, we would expect that the DBE arena is likely going to become even more competitive with a lot more firms applying for and getting into the program, given all of this funding that's going to be coming available. 
especially with the emphasis Congress is placing on promoting minority and women-owned businesses. So now as a result, small disadvantaged businesses should consider applying for the DBE certification if they're not already DBE firms. There's a lot of small business contractors in the federal arena that haven't really been interested in reaching out to working on state and local projects. But given the enormous amount of funding that's going to flow through DOT to those lower level projects, this is a really good time to consider if you meet the standards that we've talked about to consider applying for the DBE certification and get involved in the DBE program. And then again, given the importance of the program and the ever-increasing scrutiny that Congress has on compliance with the requirements, large businesses should familiarize themselves with the DBE requirements and work on identifying potential DBE partners. So one, so they're lined up, ready to bid on and perform the contracts that are inevitably going to be coming out, as well as making sure that they're remaining compliant in case they come under the microscope of whether they're complying with the DBE program requirements or not, making sure you understand what's actually required there, because it can be pretty complex and cumbersome. So that wraps up the information that we have for you today. Hopefully you guys have all gotten something out of it, regardless of what your status is, whether you're a small disadvantaged firm that's not yet a DBE, whether you're currently a DBE firm or whether you're a a large business that potentially will be partnering with DBE firms. We hope we've offered something for all of you today. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate your time. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.